Tonight, uh, we do not have a particular passage of the Bible I'm going to preach from. We're going to go to different passages of Scripture, and I'm continuing the series on the Holy Spirit, and we're moving along. I just looked at what I plan to preach for the next uh, couple of months, and I'm taking larger chunks than I thought I would. So tonight I'm going to preach on six sins against the Spirit. It says seven there, but that was supposed to change to six, because I saw that the last two are actually one. So it's six sins against the Spirit. And you can, you can open your Bible to Isaiah 63, the passage that Ruth uh, read to us earlier on. Isaiah 63, and then, then we're going to move to different texts of the Bible. Isaiah 63, verse 9. Ruth read from verse 7, but we're going to start looking from verse 9. Let's go to the Lord our God in prayer. O Spirit of the living God, you have heard this prayer. Father, you've heard the prayer brought to you in the name of Jesus and in the Holy Spirit. And we pray, Spirit of the living God, please would you breathe new life into us. You who from creation brought life as the Father spoke and the Son who is the Word of God acted and the Spirit brought and breathed life into creation. We pray, breathe new life into us and open our ears and eyes, our hearts and our mind to understand the truth of your holy word. Amen. So imagine there's a man, let's call him Jack, and Jack, he brags, they they come for marriage counseling and he can't see what the problem is, and and he boasts and brags before the counselor and says, I've never been unfaithful to my wife. I don't know what her problem is. What he doesn't tell the counselor is how he breaks her down with his words, how he uh, abuses her verbally and, and once or twice physically and emotionally definitely just uh, browbeating the poor woman. And you know, it's possible to do the same kind of thing when we talk about the Holy Spirit. It's possible for a Christian to be so afraid that we will not commit the sin against the Holy Spirit what Jesus calls the unforgivable or the unpardonable sin. And we're so afraid that we commit that sin and we forget there are other sins that we commit against the Holy Spirit. And there are six of them, as I said. The first one is people rebel against the Holy Spirit. Now, we know that many times when children grow up and children, as we say, a teenager, for instance, or a young person, and they rebel against their parents, not always... But in some cases, and maybe in many cases, children rebel and they provoked. It's like they pushed by their parents into rebellion. You find that in the book of Colossians, for instance, chapter 3, verse 20, where it says, Fathers, do not make your children angry or do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So children, for instance, let's say a parent is overbearing and the kid can do nothing right. And doesn't matter what you do, you get a an A for English, and your mom will say, why didn't you get an A for Afrikaans? Or you, get a, uh, you do something right, you, let's say you got a, got a gold medal at gymnastics, and they say, why, didn't you, why couldn't you do that with athletics? It's like the kid can do nothing right, and they become angry, and they become rebellious, or over-disciplining them, or not being involved in their lives, and so on. So sometimes it's also the parents' fault. But 
When we talk about rebelling against the Holy Spirit, it's never the Holy Spirit's fault. It's always us. It's we who are at fault. And we see this in, in Isaiah 63 verse 9. In all their affliction, in other words, in all their sufferings, he suffered or was afflicted. The angel of his presence saved them. That's the people of Israel saving them from Egypt when they were slaves. In his love, in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up. He carried them all the days of old. So the Holy Spirit does all these wonderful things. God does all these wonderful things for his people. And then what do they do? How do they repay? In verse 10, they rebelled and they grieved his Holy Spirit. Rebelling against the Holy Spirit. Standing up against him. You know that happened many times. You see how the Spirit led them in verse 14. Like livestock that go into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So he brings them into this land. You led them, your people to make for yourself a glorious name. But again and again and again, his Holy Spirit instructed them. His Holy Spirit provided for them in the desert. Nehemiah 9 verse 20 and 21. And you see they got shoes on their feet. Imagine they had a pair of shoes that lasts 40 years. Clothes that last for 40 years. You got bread that falls from heaven. Every, every morning there's bread. And God provides them meat, water from the rock. And they rebel there. It's like they lift their fist against God. You see that in Exodus 14. They come to the Red Sea. Why did you bring us out, Moses? You want to kill us? Aren't there graves in Egypt? By the way, that's irony. Egypt is the land of graves. The pyramids. And all the graves of the Egyptian pharaohs. Why did you bring us into this desert? Now we're stuck here. Now we're going to die. The Egyptian army is going to kill us. And then God opens the sea, the Red Sea, and they pass through. And then they pass through the next chapter. Oh, there's a song of praise, but the chapter ends with them complaining again. Well, you want to kill us by thirst? You want to kill us? There's no water in this place. This water is bitter. And then Moses puts a stick into the water as the Lord tells him a log and the water becomes sweet. And then God gives them 12 fountains of water springs, fountains, and 70 palm trees for shade in the desert. And in the next chapter, they complain again. Now there is no food in this place. You want to let us die. What's your, what's your problem, Moses? And then God gives them bread from heaven. And then they complain about the bread. And then God gives them meat. Enough to last them a month. <clears throat> and then the next chapter they complain again. Always complaining and complaining. Where's the water? You want to kill us? God gave you water. Do you think he can't give it again? And then God gives them water from a rock. And then they complain in the book of Numbers. Same thing, chapter 11. And then chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron stand up against Moses. Why are you the only leader? We, also, we, we should also be the leaders of God's people. In the next chapter, spies go into the promised land. Check out the land. They bring a big cluster of grapes. Probably, probably as, at least as tall uh, as right under your arm. Big cluster of grapes. They're carrying on the pole between them. But then they complain, no, they're giants in the land. They're going to destroy us. We can't fight them. And then they want to stone Moses and Aaron. And then more complaining in the next chapter. Or in chapter 16 at least of Numbers. Now it's Korah and Dathan and Abiram who stand up. Why are you the leader? Why, why only Aaron and his family the priests? And you Moses, you've gone too far now. You make yourself a judge and leader over us. We won't listen to you. And then God kills them. The earth opens up and swallows them. And the next chapter they complain again. In chapter 17. And so it goes. The history of Israel. And today we commit the same sin. Oh, we like Jonah. We get angry at God when things don't go our way. We go through hard times. We're angry at God. I'm angry at God. Why did my mother die? 
Why didn't God heal my mother? But then did you ever thank God for your mother? Or was it just complaining when he took her away? Complaining, complaining. We don't thank for God for what we have, but then we complain for what we do not have. I remember when I was a student, there was one of the students, we used to take turns, and we would sit around the table, it's dinner time, and uh, then one of the older students, let's say the fifth year or fourth year students, would say, okay, would you pray for us? And this, year, this time it was the fifth year student praying. She said, Lord, thank you very much. And please make us thankful for this food. And so, so, so. Amen. Ah, fish fingers again. <laughs> Just after he said, Lord, make us thankful for what we have. Complaining. We complain when they do not remove the rubbish bags. But do you look in the rubbish bags to see what is inside those bags, in the black bags? What do you see? You see tea bags, you see orange peels, you see maybe a chocolate wrapper, you see a plastic bag where there was Albany bread in. Maybe ice cream, maybe Millie's, deodorant, shampoo, empty containers. We don't thank God for what we had. We just complain for what we do not have. We complain about the petrol prices rising. Do you thank God that you have a car? Many people don't. Mm. We complain about the government and corruption. And things going bad in South Africa and electricity and load shedding. But I can almost guarantee you, most of us here have never for one day in your whole life thanked God that you have electricity. There are places in this country that do not have electricity. Complaining about everything. Complaining, complaining. Complain about our country. And I'm not saying uh, load shedding and all of the corruption. I'm not saying all of that is right. I'm just saying as Christians we should have a different attitude. A different attitude. We forget we live in a country, beautiful country. Beautiful country. I met an American who visited our country. He, he tried to break the Guinness Book of, of Records, of World Records, to visit all the countries on the UN list, 196 countries, before he turned 21 years old. And so he came here, and by the time he was here, he'd visited 136 countries. He says, Cape Town, the Western Cape, is the most beautiful place he's seen of all the countries he's visited. So we're privileged. I want to be more like my wife. You know, I see the news, and I see things going bad, and crime, and corruption, and I get discouraged and negative. My wife sees that, and she says, wonderful. It's so dark now, now our light can shine. Now we can shine the light for Christ. We complain about money. But do you thank God that you have a job? Because some people, and some people even here, might not have a job. I want to tell you, complaining is a mark of unbelievers. Complaining is a characteristic of atheists. Complaining is a characteristic of false teachers. We find that in Romans chapter 1 verse 21. And it speaks about atheists there. Speaks about people, either they say there's no God or they, or they live like there's no God. And then it says, they did not honor or thank God. And then in the book of Jude, verse 16, it speaks of false teachers and says they are grumblers and malcontents. They're not content, they're not satisfied with what God gives them, the good gifts. Always moaning and groaning and complaining. It's raining too much, when's it going to stop now? Oh, it's so dry and hot, when's it going to rain more? So it doesn't matter whether it rains a lot or doesn't rain, we complain. And then you go into a restaurant and you make a scene. Because why did my burger come? I, I wanted it this way. And instead of just saying, please could you take it back and just uh, do it a bit more for me. But now you make a scene and everyone looks at you. All the other people. 
Uh, everything is a problem for people like this. They complain about everything. And let me tell you why they complain. Because they do not know the good God of heaven. Especially an atheist. Who does he thank when it rains? He doesn't believe in God. Who must he thank? The Big Bang? Evolution? Nature? <laughs> Who's he got to thank? No one. Because he doesn't believe in this God. People complain because they're proud. Or well, not they, we. <laughs> we complain because we're proud. We think we deserve better. And we forget that the only thing we deserve is hell, is God's judgment because we are sinners and rebels in His creation. So anything more than hell is grace. We are believers. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that we have a Father in heaven and every good gift and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, from the God who created the sun, moon and the stars. We have a reason to be thankful and to thank God. So don't complain as if you do not have a loving and wise and almighty Father in heaven. We don't want to be, be that way. If you and I complain, then unbelievers look at us and they will never ask us what makes you different. They'll just say, you're just like us. You also complain about everything. You probably don't have a father in heaven. <laughs> Paul tells us in Philippians 2, do everything without grumbling and complaining, verse 14. And then in verse 15, he tells you why. He says that you and I must be a testimony. We, we must shine like lights in this dark world, like stars in the sky. We must shine the light for Christ. Really drawing people to Jesus, right? That they see, why are you always thankful? Even when things are bad, you're thankful. You can see the good and not just the bad. I want to encourage you to do something practical. You can do it in different ways. Either you can take a pen and paper every day and write as much as you can, or at least in the morning, just take five minutes and write down what are you thankful for. Or you can do it in prayer straight without writing it. Just start your morning by first thinking, all the things you can be thankful for. Thank you, Lord, that I had a night's rest. Maybe I didn't sleep that well, but at least I got some sleep, or maybe I did have a good night's rest. Thank you that I woke up. Thank you that it's a new day. Your mercies are new every morning. Thank you that my sins are forgiven in Christ because I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that I'm on my way to heaven. Thank you that I've got a spiritual family. Thank you that I have a job. Or thank you if I don't have a job. Thank you that I can ask you for a job and trust you to help me. Thank you that I'm still alive and you've provided for me up to this point. And so on. There's a lot to be thankful for. So thank the Lord. Colossians 4 verse 2 says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. Thank the Lord. And then ask the Holy Spirit to help you. Ask the Holy Spirit to, to influence you, to fill you, to control your life. Because if you're filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5 verse 18, then Ephesians 5 verse 20 will happen. You will thank God the Father for all things, and in all things at least, in the name of Jesus Christ. And God will change you from a complainer into someone who receives the instruction of His Word and thanks Him. Isaiah 29 verse 24. Uh, he will give you power. We all know the verse in Philippians 4, hey? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, through Him who strengthens me. What's the context? The context is complaining. Where Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content. Sometimes I've had abundance, I've had lots of things to, to live from, and then sometimes I didn't have enough. But Christ gives me the power to be thankful in whatever my circumstance may be. Second sin against the Spirit. 
how people sin against the Spirit? People test Him. So the first one was they rebel against Him. The second one, people test Him. Go to Acts chapter 5, Handeling of Faith. But you must be quick with your fingers tonight, because there's a lot to come. Acts chapter 5. So while you're turning there, you've seen bad parenting, right? Where a child is disobedient to his mother, and then the mom says, let's say for instance, go and clean up your room. And then the kid just sits, he's not obedient, or still keeps on playing with the toys. And the mom said, I spoke to you, and the kid like ignores his mom, keeps on playing. And then the mom says, I'm counting to ten. One, two, and what does the child do? He just sits there till she says nine and then he runs to the room. That is bad parenting. Because that child learns, I know where to push my mom's buttons. And I'll push you till number nine and then I'll go and do what you say. So I decide when I obey, not you. That is bad parenting. The Holy Spirit is not like that. He will not, he will not have that. The Holy Spirit is patient, is patient, but He will not have you or I push His buttons. To say, I will manipulate Him. You see what happened in Acts chapter 5. You remember the story. Look at the beginning of the chapter. So here's a husband and wife called Ananias and Sapphira. In Ananias and Sapphira we learn they had a piece of property and Jerusalem's going to be destroyed anyway. Jesus said so. So now they're going to sell their piece of land. And now they bring the money to the apostles and they say, well, why don't you take this money? They're poor people in the church and we can help the poor. But in their kitchen beforehand, it doesn't say the kitchen, but let's say in their kitchen beforehand, they were sitting saying, okay, let's take the money to the church. Then we're going to say, then we're going to say we sell this piece of property, this piece of land. We, we brought the money and we want to help the poor. And then we tell them it's all the money, so they want to lie. And they actually want to do this so people like them, not because they want to honor God and really care about others. And then when, when the husband comes to Peter, Peter said, oh, so you got this money. Thank you very much. Tell me, is this all the money? Oh, yes, yes, this is all the money. And he said, why, why do you test the Holy Spirit? Why do you lie to God? You didn't lie to men. You lie to the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> the piece of land was yours. No one said you must sell it. You could have kept the piece of land. Even after you sold it, no one said bring the money to the church. No one said you need to bring all the money. The problem is you tested God. You tested the Spirit. You lied to the Holy Spirit. Then, the then He drops dead. Then the wife comes in. She tells the same lie. She drops dead. Peter tells her, you put the Spirit of God to the test. That's your problem. You see that. Look at the verse. It says in verse, uh, verse 3, you lie to the Holy Spirit. And you move down a bit. In verse 9, why have you agreed with your husband to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test. You wanted to test Him. It's like they're testing Him to see, does the Holy Spirit really know everything? Is the Holy Spirit really everywhere? Is the Holy Spirit really holy? Does He take sin seriously? And He does. He killed both of them. Don't think the Holy Spirit doesn't see your secret sin. He does. The Holy Spirit sees everything. And He knows everything. In Psalm 10, I've got a lot of verses here. I'm not going to read all of them. they too many. But in Psalm 10 verse 11, for instance, we read about the wicked and it says, he says in his heart, God has forgotten, he has hidden his face, he will never see it. And then Psalm 36, the same thing. In verse 2, you've got evil people and they say this, Psalm 30, uh, 36 verse 2, he flatters himself in his own eyes. This is according to the English. Afrikaans will probably be verse 1. Flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. 
It's like he thinks no one knows, God doesn't know. Oh, but, but God made the ear, does he not hear? God made the eye, does he not see? Psalm 94 says that. Proverbs 15 says God sees everything. He sees everything that happens on earth and in the hearts of men. He sees the good and he sees the evil. He sees what the righteous do and what the wicked do. You can read Proverbs 15 verse 3. God sees if you steal money from your employer. God sees if you commit fraud. God sees if you commit adultery. God sees if you're watching pornography. God sees if you have got a secret cell phone relationship with a woman who is not your wife or a husband who is not your, or a man who is not your husband. God sees if you pray in public and you pray eloquent prayers, but you do not pray in private, like the Pharisees, praying in front of everyone, but there's no prayer in relationship with God at home. You see, everything is open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. All of creation lies open before God. Hebrews 4 verse 13. And are you then surprised that God will not answer your prayers? Why does God not answer my prayer? Why not? Because God sees your heart. God sees what you do in secret. God sees Psalm 66, 18. If I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have answered my prayer. You're playing with sin. God sees you crying at His altar, like in Malachi 2, crying, why does God not hear me? Why does He not accept my sacrifice? Because God sees that you are committing adultery. You're unfaithful to your wife. So search your heart and pray, search me, O God. Search me, O God. Like David prays in Psalm 139 at the end, please show me where things are wrong. And tonight we're coming to this table. Children, little, all the boys of the kids club, I want to say a very important thing now, that when we come to this table, we're going to eat from this table. There's bread here and there's some juice. But we're not going to give it to the children. Um, not because we don't like you, we love you. That's why we have Kids Club for you. And we want to teach you all about Jesus, but you must first understand what this is about. And so when we come, those who are, are born of God, those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we come to this table, we do what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 28. We search our hearts, we examine ourselves. And we come to the Word of God and we pray, Lord, let the Word of God, like a sharp two-edged sword, cut right into my heart and show me my motives and show me my intentions and show me where there's sin, sin hiding in the corners of my heart. And we don't stay away from the table if you're a Christian and there's sin. You come and fix that. You come and fix that with God and ask Him for, for forgiveness to cleanse your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to, to purify your heart by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ even of the secrets. And isn't that what David prayed in Psalm 19, where David said to the Lord, he said, uh, Lord, these hidden sins, these secret sins, he asks for forgiveness, even for those. So live Coram Deo. That's the, the motto of our church. Live Coram Deo. Before the face of God, before the presence of God's Spirit. Where shall I go from your Spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence, Lord? You cannot run from the Spirit. He sees all. Fear God. Fear God more than you fear men. You see, if you fear people, then you will not sin in their presence. But you will sin in secret. But if you fear God, you will not want to sin in private, in your thoughts, in your motives, in your heart, or behind closed doors, or in the dark. Because you honor God. You fear God. You know God is closer to you than you are to yourself. Because if we keep on testing the Spirit, and we do not fear God, if we keep on testing the Spirit, the Holy Spirit will show to you He knows everything and He sees all. 
And He will reveal your sin in the most shocking way. He will bring out your sin in, the, in public and you will, you will be surprised. How did people find out? I know of a case where a person accidentally sent a WhatsApp. I don't know at who he was shouting or what he was angry at and he shared it on a public group. God will bring out your sin. Your sin will find you out, says Numbers 32, verse 23. So we cannot hide these things. I remember speaking to a guy. The guy, I almost want to say literally, but I can't remember. But I almost want to say literally, his jaw dropped. How did you find out? God brought it out. And even if it's only after you die, God will bring it out. Like sadly with, with you know, the, uh, the Canadian apologist, the guy who had an apologetics ministry in Canada, Ravi Zacharias, came out after his death. All the dirty washing, the dirty linen came out. And maybe it won't come out after you die, but, but it will come out on the judgment day. What you did in secret will be sh shouted from the rooftops. Jesus says that in Luke 12, verse 2 and 3. And you'll be surprised on the day of judgment. Why, why am I not entering heaven? But Lord, I prophesied, I was the pastor of the church. I was an elder. I was a deacon. I was a Sunday school teacher. Lord, I, I even told other people about Jesus. I did good. And, and Jesus said to them, go away, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. You see, the Holy Spirit warned you through his word. He warned you in your conscience, but you ignored the spirit you put into the test. To say, does he really know? Does he really know? And now you have to face the music. Number three, third sin, how way people sin against the Spirit, is people resisting. There's a, a movie made of the book of Hosea, the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. And the, the book of Hosea remembers a story about Hosea, he's a prophet, and, and, and he marries a prostitute. And then the prostitute, they have a child, and he gives him a name, and then another child is born, and then another child, but eventually... One of the children is called not my people. It's like, I'm not sure is this my child or some other man's child because my wife is unfaithful. And then she's unfaithful again. She commits more adultery. Then he goes and buys her back in the slave market and she's his wife again. But it's this, this battle and this, this all the time. Is she going to be faithful to me? And that's a picture of God and his people where his people are unfaithful to him all the time. They turn away from God again and again to worship other gods. And Stephen said the same of the Israelites. Stephen said they've got uncircumcised ears. And their hearts are not circumcised. They don't listen to the Holy Spirit. They don't listen to the Word of God. Like again and again the prophets came in the Old Testament for hundreds of years warning them. And telling them, repent. God is your Savior. God is your Creator. Turn back to Him and they won't. They keep on turning away to false gods, to idols. They, and then they kill some of the prophets... They just resist them all the time. And Stephen says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. He says in Acts 7.51, you always resist. And then eventually when God sends His Son, the Messiah, you, you murder Him. You nail Him to a cross. You will not listen to God's Word. You will, wouldn't listen to the law. Wouldn't listen to the prophets. You would not listen to the Son of God. You actively oppose Him. Uncircumcised ears, Jeremiah 6 verse 10. A forehead that's hard like like flint, it's hard like rock, maybe as hard as a diamond. You know, stubborn, stubborn. The Jews, people of Israel. And uh, 
you know, it's sometimes actually more than just stubborn and not wanting to hear. Sometimes they actively oppose you. Actively oppose God's word. How do you deal with people like that? What about those people at your work? You try to talk to them about Jesus like they actively oppose the gospel. Or family members. Maybe you've got a husband or a wife who's not a Christian or children or other family members or neighbors. You try to talk about Jesus. They're actively against Christianity. Well, I'll tell you how you will not reach them. You won't reach them if they've got uncircumcised ears and uncircumcised heart. You won't reach them if you've got uncircumcised lips. Moses said to the Lord, I've got uncircumcised lips in Exodus 6. You won't reach them that way. It won't help you tell people like that. You must bow before Jesus because your own heart is not circumcised. You call Jesus Lord, Lord, but you don't do what he says. Crooked business practices, the kind of movies you watch, and people know you watch those things. Kinds of music you listen to, all sexual immorality and ugly stuff in and bad language. The filthy language you use or dirty jokes that you laugh at or tell. Uh, the way you drive and just lose your temper. How are you going to tell someone else, bow the knee to Jesus? You're not bowing the knee to Jesus. You're a hindrance. You're standing in the way of people coming to Jesus. Yeah, so, so what we need to pray is ask the Holy Spirit, circumcise my heart. Circumcise my heart. Let, remove this heart of stone, this hardened heart, this stubborn heart. Give me a soft heart that will submit to your word, that will submit to Christ, that would submit to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 speaks of that, uncircum or that circumcised heart. And Colossians 2.11. Ask the Lord to do that in you before you start praying for others. And then once you've done that, then you bring the hammer of the word. Because the word is a hammer that breaks rock. Jeremiah 23.29. You bring the hammer of God's word. You bring the law of God. That's the schoolmaster to show people to Christ. You bring this, the, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. It cuts into hearts and it shows people their hearts. And you pray that the Holy Spirit will break the hard ground. He will plow up their hearts. So that the seed can penetrate. And you can bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he will break the resistance. Like with the apostle Paul. Paul, Paul, why are you kicking against the pricks? Or he called him Saul then. Paul, his name was Paul later on. Why are you kicking against these pricks? Your conscience is being pricked by that sermon that Stephen preached in chapter 7. You heard the sermon. So submit. And you ask the Holy Spirit to convict people of sin and righteousness and judgment. And then you sow the word of God through prayer. And through evangelism. And you bring this word of God and you expect a harvest. I know I'm guilty of this. Well, I often don't expect a harvest. You expect a harvest to come in. You who sow with tears will reap with shouts of joy, says the psalmist. Keep on sowing. Keep on praying for those people. And once you've spoken to them and they will not obey, you keep on praying for them. But the kingdom of God is like a man who went and he sowed. And he didn't see it grow under, under the soil, underneath the surface. He just went to sleep and God did the work. And so you sow the seed and we pray and trust God to do the work. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. You ask the Spirit to do that. Now may I ask you a question, are you perhaps resisting the Holy Spirit? Because the Spirit is talking to you through the Word. And your parents maybe are teaching you what is right and teaching you the Word. Or maybe the pastor is teaching you from the pulpit. Or maybe friends are talking to you from the Bible. And you are stubborn. You are resisting the Spirit. You will not obey. Maybe you even actively, you get people, as I said earlier, they actively oppose the preachers. Those who bring the gospel to them. We will shut your mouth, preacher, 
you will not bring this word here. And he's trying to live a holy life and doing his best to teach you the word. Be careful. Be careful. You resist those who bring you the word of God. You resist those who seek to show the example of Christ. That's what Miriam did. That's what Aaron did with Moses. And God struck Miriam with leprosy. That's what Korah, Dathan, and Abiram did. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them alive. That's what those, those young boys did with Elisha when he's the prophet. He's coming to bring the word. And they just said, get out of our city. You're not coming into our city, you baldy man. And then he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came and tore up 42 boys, killed them. Because they withstood the Spirit of God and the Word of God. It happened in the 1640s with John Logie. He went to listen to Alexander Henderson, but he opposed him. And while Henderson was preaching, he mocked him. And God killed John Logie, a young man, 1644, in Scotland. What you rather want to do is you want to submit and bow the knee. You want to tremble before God's Word. You want to fear the commandments of God. Psalm 119 verse 120. And then also Isaiah 66 verse 2. God will look upon you if you humble and you tremble at His Word. And you submit to your leaders in the church. Hebrews 13, 17. If they teach you the Word of God, you submit. Not because they're important, but because the Word of God is important. And God has placed them over you. And you submit to the Holy Spirit and the leading of His Spirit in the Word. Keep in step with the Spirit. Fourth sin. Fourth way people sin against the Spirit. People grieve Him. There's a lady in our church. She's a member of our church. And many of you know her. Uh, she's no longer able to come to church because of her age. And she doesn't live in Kempton anymore. But she cannot cry. It's not because she doesn't want to and she never gets sad. She does not have the ability to cry. Something happened. I don't know exactly what. Maybe something with her tear ducts. And she's not able to cry. Now, the same with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit cannot cry. He's a spirit. But he can get sad. He can be grieved. He can be grieved if Isaiah 63 verse 9, he does all these good things in verse 10, you grieve the Spirit. Because you say, no, I'm not happy with that, and you rebel against Him. Or any sin that we do. Ephesians 4 verse 30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. He's talking in the context of sin and obedience. We make the Holy Spirit sad, we as Christians, if we sin against Him. And what's going to happen then? If you sin against the Holy Spirit in that way, you grieve Him, then you are going to lose a sense of His nearness. And you're going to lose the impression, because the Holy Spirit seals you for the day of the coming of Jesus, when you'll receive a new body. He seals you for the day of redemption, says that verse. So you're going to lose that assurance. And you're going to wonder and start doubting, am I a Christian and so on. Because the Holy Spirit has withdrawn the sense of His presence. Not that He withdraws because He's there to convict of sin. But the sense of His nearness is withdrawn. And that special seal, that assurance of salvation, He withdraws it. So what you and I need to do is call out to Him because now His voice is silent. It's like, where's the Lord? I'm praying and He's not answering. You and I need to pray what David prayed in Psalm 51. Where David prayed, I think it's verse 11, Afrikaans verse 13, where he said, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Please, Lord, you pray that the blood of Jesus would cleanse you. And where the blood goes, the oil will go. Leviticus 14, verse 14 and verse 17. And that's real blood and real oil, but it's also a picture of the blood of Christ. Where the blood of Christ goes, the Spirit goes. Fifth sin. Fifth way people 
sin against the spirit. People quench him. Like you quench a fire with water, people quench him. Now you quench the Holy Spirit. Go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's one of Paul's letters. Closer toward, to the end of the Bible. 1 Thessalonians 5 from verse 19. Well, actually, you can just page one page back to chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 8. So here's the first way people grieve the Holy Spirit, or uh, uh, quench the Spirit. You quench the Holy Spirit if you say, it's just the opinions of people. Now, whose opinion is that? That's your opinion. Now you've just added your opinion. You say, that's the opinion of people. Now you've just brought, if you believe that, you've just brought another opinion then. To say, I can add to the Bible, I can say things differently, or I can take things away, which is a very serious sin, by the way, according to Revelation 22, 18 and 19. So you, you, you're quenching the Spirit. Why? Look at verse 8, chapter 4. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. You disregard the words of the Apostle Paul, or any of the Old Testament or New Testament books, you are disregarding the Holy Spirit. You're disregarding God who gives the Holy Spirit. And then you quench the Holy Spirit if with your lips you say, Oh, I honor the Bible. But many people don't care. They couldn't care less whether they are here on a Sunday morning and evening to hear the preaching of God's Word or not. They don't honor the Bible. That's just lip service. Or you say, I honor the Bible. You come, but you don't do. You don't obey the Word of God. That's quenching the Holy Spirit. You're quenching the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit warms your heart. And it's like your heart is a little fire, but there are no more flames. They're just coals. And the Holy Spirit goes. And it's like He's breathing life into you to say, I want you to talk to that person about Jesus. And He moves your heart to pray. But you say, no, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to talk to her now. No, I don't want to pray now. And then He moves your heart to read the Scriptures. But you don't want to do it now. And then He moves your heart to give Him praise and thanks. To praise the Lord and to praise Christ. And He moves your heart to sing praises. And He moves your heart to be on your knees confessing your sin. And all of that, He moves your heart to serve other believers. And you're just quenching, no, I'm not going to do it now, I'll do it later. And then later, it's like all of that warmth is gone. You just don't feel like doing it anyway. Ephesians 5 says, be filled with the Spirit. And then the next verses tell you thanksgiving and singing praises and all of that. Verse 19 now, chapter 5. Oh, 1 Thessalonians. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. You quench the Holy Spirit if He's given you a spiritual gift and you let it rust. Or you leave it on the shelf to gather dust. You've got a spiritual gift, but you're not serving. You're just like a spiritual couch potato. Getting fed and getting fed by preaching and you get fat spiritually. No exercise, no serving. 1, 2 Timothy 1 verse 6. Timothy, fan into flame the gift that is in you. You've got a spiritual gift. Use it, Timothy. And so use the spiritual gift. If you don't do it, you're quenching the Spirit. You're quenching the Holy Spirit. If He, if he blows upon you, it's like He's moving you to a holy life. And you don't live a holy life. You just ignore Him. Well, then it's back to chapter 4 verse 7 and 8. God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, 
disregards not man, but God who gives his spirit. So if you don't live a holy life, and the spirit is the Holy Spirit, he wants you to live holy. But if you don't do that, you're quenching the Holy Spirit. You're quenching the Holy Spirit if it's very clear, it is patently clear, that a certain work is of God. It is the work of God's Spirit, and you deny that. Like chapter 5, verse 19, do not quench the Spirit, don't despise prophecies. So here's a prophecy, for instance, you say, and it's clear it's a prophecy. It's clear. No one knew that of you. But here a person says something, and you just say, no, that's not the work of the Spirit. It happened to me not long ago. So a certain brother in Christ said that I want to share something, there's a problem, I want to share something. But I'll share it with you when, whenever the time was set. And I prayed for this brother, and I was praying, and I knew the brother was going through a hard time, and as I was praying, I knew exactly what the person's coming to say. And I could not have known that beforehand. And it's like I knew this is what the person's... And I didn't know why. Why would the Lord lay that on my heart and, and I know exactly what the person's... I mean the detail. Anyway, and then later I shared that with a brother in the ministry, another pastor, who doesn't know this brother. Or well, I think he does know the brother, but I didn't mention the brother's name. But anyway, I shared with the, the other person just to say that the God, God can still work in that way if he wants to. And the other brother said to me, well, but maybe it was just, you can't say it was the Spirit. Maybe it was just you, you figured it out. That is quenching the Holy Spirit. The Spirit shows that, do not despise prophecies. It says, quench the Holy Spirit like Charles Chauncey. Charles Chauncey lived in the 1700s in New England in the United States, and there was a revival under the ministry of Jonathan Edwards and some other preachers, and he just said, that's not a work of the Spirit. It's like Jesus doing a miracle, casting a demon out of a man, healing a blind man, making a mute man talk, and then the Pharisees say, no, it's by the devil he does that. It's not the Spirit. We quench the Holy Spirit if, what I did in the past many times, if... We just ignore anything that doesn't fit our theology. Because I'm a cessationist, and I believe that the Holy Spirit doesn't work in that way anymore. So whatever you say, that's not the work of the Spirit. You are delusional. I said that to a guy. When a guy said a miraculous answer to prayer, I said, you are delusional. The Spirit doesn't work in that way anymore. I quenched the Holy Spirit. Another man did the same. When there was a very clear, there were very clear testimonies of a miraculous answer to prayer in healing multiple cases where people were healed in answer to prayer miraculously. And there's evidence for it, even medical evidence. And the guy just said, no, that's nonsense. Hmm. Look at verse 19. Do not quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. When they're spiritual gifts, don't despise them. But test everything and so on. So that's the next one. If you just refuse to test. You are quenching the Spirit. If someone comes and he brings teaching and you tell the person, listen, you must test whatever teaching comes. You must test, test it by the Bible. How dare you? I've actually heard that. And you know some famous TV preachers say that. Don't touch the anointed man of God. Don't touch the man of God. Well, the Apostle Paul, excuse me, in Acts 17 verse 11, when he preached, the Jews in Berea tested him to see, is what he says according to Scripture? We must test the teaching. And if you don't do that, you are quenching the Holy Spirit. Look at verse, the verse again. Verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from what is evil. 
Finally, number six. Sixth way that people sin against the Spirit. And here's the one that I thought was seven, but it's actually six. Uh, people insult Him and blaspheme Him. Those are actually one. People insult the Holy Spirit, beledigom, and blaspheme. It beteken fluk, laster, in verskillende maniere. Now, what is the blasphemy? That's the unforgivable sin, this last one. The others can be forgiven. What is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit or insulting the Spirit? I read an article. I didn't read the whole thing. It was very long. But I scanned through. And this guy tried a very technical argument to say that if you were baptized as a baby, and then later you say, no, but I must be baptized now as a believer, then you, you're committing that sin. You are now insulting the Holy Spirit and blaspheming. You will not be forgiven. Now that is nonsense. That's not what this sin means. To insult the Holy Spirit, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, is if you can see very clearly that is a work of the Holy Spirit. You see powerful answers to prayer. In a church, let's say for instance, you start attending a church, you see wonderful answers to prayer. You see even miraculous answers to prayer. You see revival. You see people being converted. You see people's lives changing from the inside out. They were evil yesterday. Today they are transformed by the power of the Spirit under the preaching of the gospel. You see all of those things happen. And you see, you say, I turn my back on all of that. That is, that's the work of Satan. You turn away from that. You say, no, those people, I can clearly, it's clear that it's the work of the Spirit. You say, no, they're drunk. Just a bunch of drunk people. Stupid people doing stupid things. Now, this is not something that happens once off. This is not like, oh, you said something once, or uh, maybe you mocked, you, you scoffed and mocked at the preaching of the gospel because you're ignorant. No, th this is not it. This is, it's like your, your eyes are open to see, this is right. I cannot explain this in any other way. This must be God. It's clear. In non Afrikaans, villains in Vietnams. It's like willingly. You resist and you harden your heart. You harden yourself against all the evidence that this is a work of the Spirit of God. That you sin with a high hand. This is not unintentional sin. This is sinning with a high hand against God. This is not blaspheming because you see, read about Jesus or you heard someone say something about Jesus. Oh, he's just another prophet. Maybe a false prophet even. That is a sin, but it can be forgiven. Jesus said that. All sin against the Son of Man can be forgiven. All kinds of blasphemy can be forgiven. No, this is not that kind of thing. This is not crucifying Jesus because you're ignorant. Like Jesus said, if the Jews knew, if the leaders knew He was the Son of God, the Lord of glory, they wouldn't have crucified Him. This is not the Apostle Paul persecuting Christians and blaspheming Jesus because he was ignorant. 1 Timothy 1 verse 13. No, this is... This is Having all the evidence, it's inexplicable. You cannot explain it otherwise than a supernatural work of God. And you've seen it again and again. You saw revival. You tasted it. You turn your back on all of that. And you say, that's a load of hogwash. That's a load of rubbish. I don't believe that stuff. It's work of Satan. Hmm. There's no forgiveness for such people. Why are there no forgiveness? Jesus says so, Matthew 12, 31 to 32. Why is there no sin? 
It's because they've insulted the Spirit who clearly showed them Jesus. He showed them the Son of God. He showed them Jesus is the one. And they, it's like they're trampling the blood of Jesus under their feet and saying, I don't want this nonsense. And they're rejecting the only Savior. Hebrews chapter 10. I'll be there before you, I think. Hebrews 10. Look at that quickly. Hebrews 10 verse 29. This is it. This is insulting the Holy Spirit. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and outraged or insulted the Spirit of grace? There is no hope for such a one. Why can they not be forgiven? Because they've turned their backs. After all the evidence, they've turned their backs on the only one who can forgive. I don't, now where are they going to find forgiveness? There's nowhere else. You can't run to your animal sacrifices and think the goat's going to forgive your sin or the sheep. Christ alone can. Now you've rejected all of that. And the Holy Spirit is angry at such people. He's angry at them. And He gives them what they want. That's exactly what they want. It's not like they don't want to sin against the Spirit. They want to. And then He gives them what they want. You want to close your eyes? I will blind you. You want to stop your ears? I will make you deaf. You want to harden your heart? I will harden your heart. And now they hardened and they can never again repent. Not that they want to. Doesn't help to pray for such people. That's what God said to Jeremiah numerous times. Jeremiah 7 verse 16, for example, do not pray for these people. They've seen it all. There's nothing new you can tell them, Jeremiah. They know it. They've rejected it. 1 John 5 verse 16, it doesn't help you pray for such a person. They've committed the sin that leads to death. Now, some of you are timid people, timid Christians. I'm not being ugly to you. I'm just saying some of you, you doubt very easily. Now you think, have I committed that sin? Now you think of your family members. My family member's not a Christian. Has he committed that sin? Has she committed that sin? As long as the conscience works, there's hope. As long as they do something and... They know this is wrong. There's hope. As long as they want forgiveness, there's hope. Because Jesus will never cast them out. He will never reject those who come to Him. This is the will of my Father who sent me, that all who look on the Son and believe in Him will have life in His name, eternal life. They will receive life if they turn to Christ and seek forgiveness. But obviously the best of all is that we do not go astray at all as Christians. Don't backslide. Don't play with backsliding. You don't know where backsliding will end. Will you end as Judas or will you end as Peter? You don't know. So don't play with backsliding. What you want to do is you want to run from sin as fast as you can. We're living in evil times, people. We are living in evil times. And because wickedness increases, the love of many will grow cold, Jesus said. So we don't want to play with sin. You must pray and watch that you do not enter into temptation. So must I. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Ask the help of the Spirit to put sin to death. All of these sins I mentioned and any other sin. And then ask Him, grow my character. I want to be like Jesus. You use the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. You pray in the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 6, 17 and 18. And you keep a clear conscience. If you start meddling with your conscience, and your conscience is nagging at you, saying, you must make that right, you must make that right, and you just keep on ignoring it. You're in trouble. So ask the Lord to purify your conscience. And then be here. Don't stay away from here. 
Be with other believers. Be with other believers. Hebrews 10, 25, 26 tells you why. Because those people who deliberately keep on sinning, there is no forgiveness of sins. They just walk away. Be here, be here, be here. Where you can come under the word and in fellowship with believers and in prayer and partaking of the Lord's Supper. I don't think people know how serious this is. I just see people, it's like, oh, on Tuesday today, will I be with the believers or will I be at the mall? I think I'll be at the mall today. Next week will be the Jesus turn. And I'll give him my attention. 1 John 2 verse 19 speaks of people going out from the group of believers. And why do they go out and not return? Because they were never part of them. Go and read that verse. Now, almost at the end of the sermon. Some people are not afraid of this at all. They're like, no, we are we, we outside of danger. We're not in danger because we, we, our church is going well. It's going well at our church and, well, my friend, you're in danger just for thinking so. That's what Peter thought. I'll never deny Jesus. The others will, I won't. You're already in danger. That's what the church in Laodicea did, right? The church in Laodicea said, we're rich. Things are going well in our church. And Jesus said, no, it's not. You're poor. You don't even realize it. They said, we are rich and we need nothing. Where's the very first place in a church where you see that attitude? We need nothing. The very first meeting that's going to suffer is the prayer meeting. We need nothing. Why do we need to pray? And I'm going to tell you, I see it in our church. we got a prayer meeting, right? The prayer meeting has gone down almost by half. You people who were here in 2019, you remember the prayer meetings. And our prayer meeting is like, oh, prayer meeting. Hmm. Prayer meeting. Maybe, maybe not. We're trusting ourselves and not the Spirit. Or at least trusting ourselves more than we trust the Spirit. And you know what will happen if we trust ourselves more than we trust the Spirit? The Holy Spirit will withdraw His power. Okay, you keep on trusting yourselves. Let's see what you can accomplish. Because we don't honor the Spirit. So we need to confess our sin. And He will heal our backsliding. Hosea 14 verse 4. He will heal our backsliding. Or, if we don't want to do that, then we can ignore the Holy Spirit. And we can repent temporarily, a temporary repentance. We would say, okay, I better start doing things again as I should, and better start really trusting the Spirit in, in prayer, and trusting the power of the Spirit, and trusting God. And then you just do it for two weeks, and you're back where you were, and you continue your ways. I will not call this a prophecy. Maybe you want to. But I tell you, if we do that, this church building will become empty. It will become a place where rats live and bats live and cockroaches and spiders. 
And then maybe not long after that, someone will buy the building and it will become a school or a mosque, like happens with the church buildings in Europe. So let us not sin against the Spirit. Let us submit to the Spirit and His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray for Your grace and the grace of the Holy Spirit. Oh, forgive us, Lord. None of us sitting here tonight can say, I've never sinned against the Spirit. Oh, we've done so often. Please forgive us and please apply the blood of Christ to us. And please return, O Spirit of God. We can have all the activity and the evangelism and the preaching and even pure preaching and even passionate preaching. And we can have a prayer meeting and a youth meeting and kids club and women's Bible studies. And all the while we like Samson, we do not even know the Spirit has departed and left us. He's grieved. Where is the presence of God? Oh Lord, would you not, what you did in Worcester in 1860, in the Western Cape, what you did in Asbury last Wednesday, what you did in Kilsith, what you did in Cumberslung, what you did in Indonesia and China, revivals, O oh God, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, Amen.